All right, you can uh, grab your Bibles and turn to John chapter 3. We're going to be back in the Gospel of John study, John 3. And we're going to look at the whole chapter, but I'm going to, I'm going to read the first 21 verses and uh, sort of talk about the latter verses. But we don't have time to, to tear apart, of course, every single verse. But John chapter 3, and we'll start there in verse, verse 1. These are the words of God. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him has, is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. Let's pray. Our Father in God, we humbly come to you. We humble ourselves before you as we open up your word and we ask that this sword would cut us. We pray that the scriptures would convict us, transform us, and draw us near to you. Lord Jesus, we exalt you in this assembly of your body, here to hear the ethics of your word. And Holy Spirit, we ask that you would help us to do all of that. In Christ's name, amen. Well, we come tonight to a text that reveals quite a variety of different things when we consider it, which means that we're going to need to figure out a way to consider all of those things and figure out how to tie them all together, um, which is to say that I have my work cut out for me. <laughs> but before we just give a summary of the passage, which is typically our normal custom, um, we're going to, I really want us to just remember a few things on the front end that I am convinced are utterly important um, as we think about a text like this. So to begin, we'll start here. We have to keep in mind that Jesus Christ is King Adam II. Jesus Christ 
is King Adam II. Jesus Christ is the second Adam, or what we might say the new Adam, the new and improved version, if you will, Adam 2.0. Jesus was and is a man, and we should think of him in terms related to the first man, the first Adam. Now, as a side note, those terms, of course, they have to be just about anything but sin. We know that Jesus was sinless, unlike his father, Adam, which we'll talk about momentarily. So Adam is the federal head of humanity. Jesus is the federal head of a new humanity. Federal simply from the Latin simply means the covenantal head. He is the federal head of the new humanity. So that's the first thing we need to keep in mind when we approach a passage like this. The second is like unto it. In biblical theology, we have two incredibly important concepts to take into consideration when we think about this world that we live in as it pertains to life in this world we live in and God's interaction with the world via his covenant. So the, the five-point covenant model referenced earlier um, sort of sets the stage for us and how we live, and it applies in various um, avenues. But that covenant is important for us to know because that's the means by which God interacts with the world. Um, that's a deep topic for another time. Maybe we can explore, but it's there. Those two things are this. There, there, are, there are two things and there are things that we can, one, we can consider continuous, and then there are things that are discontinuous. So I'll explain that. Continuity and discontinuity work together in all eschatological events. Continuity and discontinuity work together. As you, when I say eschatology, I don't mean doom and gloom, apocalypse, end of the world, dying, you know, uh, nuclear war. Eschatology simply being the paradigm through which God works in history. That's, I'm using it as a broader defini definition. There are things in history that sort of are discontinuous with history. They're sort of, you might call them an anomaly or things that are out of regular pattern, if you will. Then there are things that are um, continuous with history, sort of this ongoing way that God has structured the world to work. So uh, for you science fans... <laughs> Oxygen is sort of a continuous thing that God has chosen to utilize in his world. And we don't often think about oxygen. We just sort of breathe it and it works and we're still alive. Um, but that's a continuous thing. It's not an anomaly. You don't wake up in the morning and say, what is this thing I'm breathing? It's oxygen. We'll call it that. Um, it's just a, a way of life. So there are things that are continuous then there are things that are discontinuous, um, continuity and discontinuity. So, for example, to give you some biblical categories to work with, um, Adam was created out of the dust of the ground, right? And since he didn't have a prior existence, this was an event of discontinuity. Adam was the first man. That was the, the first of God's creation of humanity. That was a discontinuous event, God had created the world, and then uh, there was this unique thing that happened. Now, so that was a, a thing of discontinuity. Adam, Adam wasn't um, alive, crawling on the ground in a primordial goo, and then God made him. Uh, that, that would be a different thing altogether. Now, however, we need to also know that Adam, Adam was created upright, 
right? And that his miraculous existence was one of sinlessness and righteousness. We're talking pre-fall Adam, okay? So his created life was one of discontinuity. He didn't exist, and then suddenly he existed. His life as a mature, upright man in a mature creation Creation wasn't lacking, it was good, it needed to be developed because that was God's plan, but that itself then became this new life of continuity. This is what life was supposed to be. So Adam was made, that's discontinuity, and then he lived, that's continuity. So now we know that sin and death, sin and death in the garden before the fall were potentially present. They were potentially present. There was potential for that thing to take place in God's creation. However, Adam and Eve, we need to know, were righteous before God. They had the ability to sin and the ability to not sin. Now, those dead in their sins don't have the ability to not sin. We just are in a constant state of of, of death and sin. That's why we need regeneration, which is what we'll get to shortly. So we know, obviously, the path they chose, and the path that Adam and Eve chose was one of sin and ruin. This partaking of the forbidden tree, and thus the partaking of the serpent's phony covenant, itself an act of discontinuity, brought about a new condition of continuity to the world. There was a new thing that happened. History now is going to be marked by things other than righteousness and goodness and peace. History, after Adam and Eve partook, History became a continuous existence of sin, of ruin, and death. So generation after generation, man was, as a result of sin, found to be trapped inside this grand struggle between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. That was now a life of continuity. This this was a new path towards existence until Christ took on flesh. Remember, John chapter 1, 12 and 13, which says this, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Now those two verses most assuredly teach us about the doctrine of regeneration, the new, what we call the new birth, which we'll get to soon enough. But before it's that... It's first about the incarnation of Christ Jesus, the great discontinuity of Christmas. Christmas is this major disruption in the continuity of sin and death. It was a major disruption in the status quo, the way things were going. Mount Sinai was a major disruption in the world's course of history, right? These things, King David's covenant with God in 2 Samuel 7, um, that was a major act of discontinuity. God was doing something very different. Now, Jesus was born, we know that, he was born as the only begotten of God, and he was born not by the will of the flesh. Remember Joseph's confusion on that? He uh, wanted to divorce her quietly because the Bible says he was a just man, he was a righteous man, didn't want to put her to shame. Jesus was born not of the will of flesh. He was not born of the will of of blood. Now, he was uh, the child of Mary. He was the child of Joseph by adoption. 
And Jesus also was not born by the will of men. He was born by the will of God. This is the same thing we can say about Adam in the Garden of Eden. He too was born of God. Adam didn't make himself. God miraculously made him and created him. But even so, there is a major difference between Adam and Jesus. Adam was thrust into sin by his own disobedience. That's on him. Judicially speaking, God brought his judgment to to Adam and to Eve, to humanity. So Adam was thrust in by his own will, but Jesus was sinless, and hence he was the perfect God-man who came into this hopeless continuity in, in, in order to redeem it. So you might say this, in other words, the great discontinuity of the miracle of the incarnation is what puts an end to the old order and continuity of sin and death. That's the disruption. Sin and death, um, uh, depravity upon depravity, God's covenant still in history, and then Jesus comes. He puts, a, puts an end to the old order. That's why we call it the new covenant. And the new covenant is very different than the old. So if men want out of this old order of death and destruction, we know and we preach and we proclaim loudly that they must do so on Christ's terms. That's it. They must do it in terms of Christ. The only way to disrupt the condemnation of death is through a new humanity being rebirthed, and that's just what Jesus has come to do. That's the only way out, Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not going to read the whole passage. Again, it's rather lengthy. So we're just going to sort of summarize it as we go, hit a few key points, and then we'll close with some application things to consider. In verse 1, we learn about a man named Nicodemus. We're introduced to Nicodemus. He is not, this isn't the first time we're going to see him. um, And it's, it is the first time. It's not the last time we're going to see him. He's a ruler of the Jews. He is a Pharisee, and most assuredly, he is a member of the Sanhedrin, which is simply the Jewish Supreme Court. He comes, in verse 2, he comes, we're told, to Jesus by, by night. He comes at, at night. Now, <laughs> that's not a terribly uncommon thing. Um, Nicodemus would have known Jesus. He would have known about Jesus. He would have known that Jesus was a popular teacher, He would have known that there were crowds gathering around Jesus, that he was most definitely a popular person. So Nicodemus presumably comes to to him at night, hoping that maybe he can have some one-on-one time with this teacher, this rabbi. Now, it is interesting. It is interesting that John tells us that it's nighttime. Jesus is the light of the world, right? He's the lampstand of the tabernacle and the temple. He, in Nicodemus now, he is about to get an astoundingly illuminating lesson from this, this light. Nicodemus acknowledges there in verse 2 that Jesus has to have come from God because these miracles that he's doing are unexplainable on any other terms. And Jesus responds to his observation with this striking reality. He says, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus gets straight to the point, namely, seeing miracles is not enough. Just seeing them is not enough. You're not truly seeing the kingdom of God if you're just seeing miracles. You must really see. You must truly see. And the only way that happens is if you're born again, if you're rebirthed all over again. It's interesting. Nicodemus, he can't see 
and thus he can't teach. Only when Jesus confronts him with the truth of the new birth, then can he actually see and thus actually teach. Nicodemus is perplexed, as would you and I be if this was something that we had experienced had we been there. See, for, for Nicodemus, think about his world for a minute. Think about Nicodemus's world. Family and birth meant everything. Generation was supreme. Being a child of Abraham was what mattered most. Being a child of the covenant cut with Abraham was ultimate. So in terms of being born again, why would a man like Nicodemus need such a ridiculous thing? He has it all, right? He, he has the right family. He was born into the right family. He's obviously in the right line of work. He's a Pharisee. He's, he's on the Sanhedrin. He's kind of a big deal. People know him, <laughs> that sort of thing. He, he has the right titles. He has all the right stuff. He has what he needs. He has the credentials. He, he has it all. Why would Jesus then insinuate that he needed a different sort of birth experience? Well, Jesus tells us why. We learn in verse 6 that there is a difference between the two births being talked about. It's not, we sort of chide at Nicodemus, like how ridiculous, you know, the whole womb conversation. But when he hears Jesus say, you must be born again, he's hearing you were born into the wrong family. You should have gotten into a different one. That's what he's hearing. You must be born again. Well, how do I do that? How do I get... I can't go back into the womb. I'm a grown man. And we sort of think, well, that's the dumbest thing we've ever heard. Why would you say that? Well, think about who he is, what he's experiencing, what mattered most to them, and then you'll get the picture. That's why Nicodemus is perplexed. I have the right family. I have the right job. I am a teacher of teachers. I'm a pastor to pastors. I'm this big deal. What do you mean I have to sort of do it all over again? Jesus tells us why he's insinuating something different. There's a different, there are births that are different. There's the regular birth, the old birth, if you will, and then the new birth. And here's the difference. One, he says in verse six, flesh begets flesh. That's this continuity of being that has been going on for thousands of years since our father Adam and our mother Eve. That's the existence that we've known. Generation after generation after generation after generation. Thousands of years. Flesh begets flesh. Sin begets sin. Death begets death. But there's this new continuity of being that Jesus is talking about. There's this new way of being that's associated now with this inbreaking of the kingdom of God. That's why you have to be born again to truly see. To see what? The kingdom of God. It's something completely different. There's this first birth that's rooted in Adam, and then there's this new birth, one that's completely caused by the Holy Spirit, and this one is in King Adam the second. And Jesus tells Nicodemus not to be amazed by the phrase, you must be born again, verse 7. Don't be amazed. Why? Well, because of verse 8. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. In other words, you all see, especially in a day like today, you see the effects of the wind. You see it. Trees blowing, branches falling, 
cars. Anybody else have a trouble getting here a little bit on the road? Um, wind shifting your vehicle just enough to sort of let you know that it's there. You see those effects. And when you can see it or hear it, but you can't track it down, so you don't know where it came from exactly, nor do you know where it's going next. See, the Spirit's birth, the Spirit's rebirth, the, the new birth, regeneration, is the exact same thing, Jesus says. Nicodemus, he clearly sees something about Jesus. He knows something's there. Something is special with him. He's witnessed the miracles. He knows that he has to be from God. Something's up with this man. But he can't really see the wind spirit. Um, in Hebrew, it's ruha. Ruha in, in, in Numa in Greek. Um, both words can be taken to mean wind or spirit. It's a play on words. Jesus is playing on the, on the, on the language of the day. You, you can't really see the wind spirit. Okay, you, The Holy Spirit's work is not something you can nail down and quantify in a lab. He removes, or rather, he moves about in his people as they move about in life. So Nicodemus himself, he struggles to understand how this could be in verse 9. And Jesus then doesn't understand why a teacher of Israel wouldn't understand. Uh, you are a teacher of Israel. You don't, you don't get this. There's irony here. It's deeply ironic that a teacher of the law can't see the law clearly. Can't. So, so how, we have to ask the question, how polluted and defunct had things been? We know the temple was bad. Jesus brought it all to a screeching hall to Passover just the chapter before. We know things were bad. But what about the leaders? I mean, surely the leaders of Israel, things were going well there, right? Nicodemus tells us how bad it is. They have no category for this. They are so far out in left field, they don't even know where they're at. They don't have this. The whole system had become so man-centered, so debauched, that the corruption had seeped into everything. Even the leaders couldn't see. Does that sound familiar? Listen, if church repent has taught us anything, <laughs> it's that leaders who are blind enjoy seeing their people be as blind as they are. Jesus testifies to Nicodemus, the disciples. Jesus and the disciples, they have testified. They have given witness to what they are speaking of. But yet, in verse 11, they don't accept the testimony. We're told already about that back in, remember John 1, the prologue? It tells us the whole rest of the gospel right there. Everything that happens, happens there. And he told us already in verse 11 about the word coming to his own and his own did not receive him. So we should expect this as we're reading along. See, Nicodemus doesn't believe earthly things. How can he believe in heavenly things? Verse 12. Jesus then, he gives Nicodemus something thoroughly biblical to consider, and he appeals to the book of Numbers chapter 21. And if you remember the story, it's when Moses lifted up the bronze serpent in the wilderness in order to spare those who were being bitten by snakes who were sent by God as a judgment because of their grumbling and disobedience towards God. So don't grumble. Snakes will bite you. It's interesting, though. Why is it that God had Moses make a bronze image of the very thing that was attacking them? You ever thought about that? I think it's connected 
I don't know if we can tell it just by reading numbers. I think, especially what Jesus says here, he says that he himself will be lifted up and those who look upon him will be spared too, right? See, the great problem in Israel at this time was the fact that they were being bitten by the serpent, the serpent, and they had nowhere to look except to themselves. Why is it that we needed a man, a God-man, to be hoisted up? What did Jesus represent on the cross? What does Paul say in Galatians about being crucified with Christ? It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. Jesus is a man, right? The, the bronze serpent was sort of this foreshadowing. Jesus is a man hoisted up who takes our sin upon himself. Sinners need someone to take their sin. And Jesus is lifted up and he takes the sin. Because the snake biting in, in, his, in Moses' time, that was, that was a temporary judgment from God. They still needed permanent removal of sin. And that wasn't going to happen until Jesus was hoisted up. Now, a quick side note. Crucifixion was you know, a very popular mode of punishment. And the Romans were very, very good at doing it. No doubt Jesus as a child would have seen this take place. No doubt. He would have seen, there were so many ups and downs, even in Jesus' teenage life. The Bible doesn't tell us a lot about his, his life in terms of we know when he was born, we know when he was 12, and then we know when he was about 30 when he started his ministry. But, but we know from other evidences of things, there were a lot of skirmishes between Israel and Rome, and no doubt Jesus would have probably walked by and seen a man hung on a cross. He would have seen it. It happened all the time. Thousands were put to death, sometimes in one at one, in one time. Rome needed to, to suppress it. So he knows, Jesus knows there's a collision course with both Rome and the religious leaders. And this is clearly, in his own mind, a prediction of what's going to come. He's going to be lifted up. Now, the rest of, this, the, rest of the chapter, really, it, it may or may not be Jesus speaking with Nicodemus. Some of your Bibles may have red lettering. Some of them don't. We don't exactly know. We know the Greek word here changes. It's a plural. So he's not just talking to Nicodemus. Perhaps there was a crowd that gathered at this point. We just don't know. Um, but he explains that God loves the world. Jesus came to save, the, to rescue. He loves the world so much that he came so that people would look to him, so people believe on him, they would have eternal life. And this foundational aspect of the gospel is absolutely the death of Christ. He says he didn't come to judge. That part will come when history is consummated. Rather, Jesus came this time to save the world and the whole thing. And those who looked, uh, those who look, rather, as he's lifted up, they won't be judged. Those who do not look to him are already judged by virtue of the fact that they didn't believe. And, and the Bible says here that they, <laughs> the judgment is clear. The light has come into the world. But men, there are men who prefer darkness because they prefer evil deeds. In other words, this great discontinuity has come. The great divide of history has come. Those who love evil hate the light. Those who love the light hate evil. And the reason that men do this because of their deeds. There is wickedness. There is evil. Jesus has come to get a new humanity birthed out of it. And the one who practices truth comes to the light, he says in verse 21. He comes to the light so that his evil deeds can be forgiven. 
so that he can come into the kingdom. Now, I imagine at this point that Nicodemus was probably convicted and he was probably shaken to the core because we know later that Nicodemus will come and he will help Simon bury the body of Jesus. He must have come to the new birth. He must have come to faith. Now, the rest of the chapter is all about this interaction between John, the forerunner's disciples, and there, and there was some sort of misunderstanding, sort of a competition of sorts, right? Who's the one doing better? Who's doing better, John the Baptist or Jesus' disciples? And, and John, he's not confused. He knows his role. He's the best man. Jesus is the bridegroom. Therefore, Jesus must increase and John must decrease. See, this story at the end is really an application of the lessons of, of Nicodemus. So what do we do with a passage like this? While there are certainly multiple angles through which we could pick apart the story, and of course John 3.16 stands out, I want to instead sort of take a broader look at it. The interaction with Nicodemus is told in such a way as to prepare the reader for a later confrontation that Jesus is going to have with the religious leaders. Later on in John 8, verse 44, Jesus is going to tell the leaders that their father is the devil, which was not very nice. <laughs> their father was the devil. Jesus' claim is simple. They are not Abraham's children. They, they say they are, but they are not. Their father is Satan. They claim Abraham, but they don't follow the ways of Abraham, and they certainly don't possess the faith of Abraham. See, at the, at the center of this problem is this great concern re, regarding generation vis-a-vis -vis regeneration. See, the question is this. Is God's covenant ethical, and thus it's based on righteousness or justice, or is God's covenant materialistic, and thus it's based on genes and family trees and lineage. That's really at the heart of this interaction with Nicodemus. Moreover, if God's covenant is based on the latter, this genetic determinism, if you will, or generation, then what does this say about God's ability to save? If being born once, the first time, suffices for entrance into the kingdom of God, then what purpose does Christ actually have then? That's the question we need to think about. See, to point out the obvious, we are Christians, and that means that we understand our Christianity to be based on faith, not genetic makeup. Christianity is a creedal faith. It's based on faith. God's covenantal dealings in history have always been, and they're always going to be, based upon ethics, righteousness, and justice, the foundation of God's throne, Psalm 89.14 tells us. See, the corruption of Israel told to us in John 8 and even here in John 3 has everything to do with a lack of obedience from the heart. This has been and will always be the problem of man-centered religion, this outward conformity without inward transformation. I tell you what, at the March for Life, there was a lot of that, a lot of outward conformity, marching along in robes, maybe robes are good, I don't know, but sort of with these statues, and there was this, this weird idolatry taking place, and it's this outward appearance where they lack this inward transformation. And that's why we're there, you know, preaching and talking about justice and action and righteousness, everything from the civil magistrate on down. I mean, that, that's why we, why we were there. And part of it is found in our text here. We understand 
that there is a problem of the man-centered religion, outward conformity, where lacking inward transformation. See, for Nicodemus, he didn't see the problem. He had no idea. He didn't see the problem. He didn't think entrance into the kingdom of God was something too difficult after all. He did have what he needed. His resume was stacked. He was a leader of leaders. Um, But Jesus has come now, and he breaks the chain of this false continuity of being, and the gospel is the very hatchet which breaks the chain. Part of the problem with this continuity given to us by our father Adam is that no moral progression happens with man's fallen conditions. You, Chris, you guys had a bunch of people walking, talking about their uterus, and they think that they are progressing towards something positive. They can't. There is no progression. That continuity of being is sin and death, and that's all you get. That's it. Sin and death gives us more sin and death, which gives us more sin and death. And then there is more sin and death. There's just no progress. This myth of progress, apart from the gospel, apart from from God's covenant, this myth of progress, you see it every single day, whether it's your Facebook feed or television sets, you name it. It's the humanist agenda of progress, but it only leads to more statism, it only leads to more oppression. It only leads to more injustice. See, in Adam all die. And in this continuity of death, there is only an aspiration to deity. In Adam, everyone dies. And only in that continuity of being, you can find an aspiration to a deity. You had a bunch of people walking around Saturday wanting to be little gods. Man needs more than just more of the same, more of the same sin and death. Hence the gospel that we come and we proclaim. See, apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, man is basically this self-centered, self-destructive creature. That's what he is. Apart from the Spirit, apart from the new birth, that's all we do. His ideas, his aspirations can only be inwardly focused. This, he can only advance on his own agenda. That's why you get men like Hitler, men like Stalin. See, this is why men must be born again. Women must be born again. Children, you must be born again. Man needs regeneration. He needs this decisively discontinuous act of God, and it is a soul act of God. He needs this and it births him into this new humanity, one that's governed internally by the Spirit of God. Regeneration, then, it breaks this wicked track to self-deity and instead puts a man on the path toward godliness. You see, truth is something we have to grow into. This is part of the role of the Holy Spirit and his work of regeneration. We have to grow into truth. God leads us into the truth of himself. And behind all of this, Aaron read it earlier, is Ezekiel 36. Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, when the house of Israel was living on their own land, they defiled it by their ways and their deeds. Their way before me was like the uncleanness of a woman in her impurity. (laughs) In other words, vivid imagery, no doubt. In other words, the uncleanness, he says, of a menstrual cycle is likened to their debauchery. But what does God do about it? Does he just throw plagues at them? Sort of. I mean, he took them out of the land and put them in exile. They were expelled for a time. But that's not going to fix this vast problem of sin and death. What's going to fix it? 
Ezekiel tells us God prophesies about a time when he would sprinkle his covenant people with clean water. He would put his spirit inside of them and he would make them obey him. None of you walked in here tonight thinking, I'm just, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to obey God today. You only thought that because God's making you obey him by his spirit. He's the one that does it. See, God's law wouldn't remain on the outside. It would be engraved on our hearts. Quite literally, righteousness and justice would be written there, engraved there. And God's people then would worship in spirit and truth. And this time, Jesus says, this time has come. Regeneration isn't magic. It doesn't just put a million dollars in your bank account and cure your illness. God's view, his view of, and his plan for history is way more meaningful than this. God intends for us to mature, for Nicodemus to grow in truth, for us to grow in truth and learn obedience from the heart. And what does John the Baptist tell us? He says, he must increase. He must increase. And guess what? That's the whole purpose of the gospel. Jesus Christ must increase in cross and crown, and we must decrease. All of us. Regeneration is this miracle of the new birth is something that we get from God so that God increases and we decrease. It's the opposite. That's why Friday's march and Saturday's march were polar opposites. It's Christ who must increase, Christ who must advance. When humanity is rebirthed, guess what? That's just what happens. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask and pray that your word would not return void, that the passage set before us would cut us and make us a worthy sacrifice as we seek to live for you. God, grant us dominion at your hand as we go and we labor this week. We ask all of this in the powerful name of Christ, who is our Savior, who is our Lord, who is our King. Amen.